Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 356. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 356 you're listening to. My guest today is musician, multi-instrumentalist, producer, engineer, and the other half of Acadia Recording Company in Portland, Maine. I'm talking about Todd Hutchison. Todd, of course, co-owns Acadia Recording Company with Jason Phelps, who was on WCA number 355 the week prior to this one. So make sure you download that and check it out and you'll get the full picture of this great studio located in Portland, Maine. So Todd joins us today, just as Jason did the week before, and talks about not only his perspective and experiences with the studio, but also his history coming into the world of recording. So we're very happy to have him on. And of course, we have to thank former WCA guest Tanner Campbell for helping out with that. So Todd Hutchison coming up here on the Working Glass Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about when to say yes and when to say no to gigs. Whenever I'm offered a gig, I always qualify the gig on a number of levels. You know, some of it's whether it's in my wheelhouse, am I capable of doing the gig? If it is outside of my typical wheelhouse, meaning is it is it something that is not mixing or mastering or recording related? So that might be a live sound gig or a consulting gig or... You know, actually, I mean, I think podcasting would be in my wheelhouse after this many podcasts. Sure, I'll do a podcast. So if it's in the wheelhouse, that's a factor. If it's outside the wheelhouse, that's another factor. If it is outside the wheelhouse, how far out is it? You know, is it a song or type of music to mix that I'm not familiar with or don't care to, you know, partake in? No offense to the EDM community, but I'm not your guy to mix an EDM song. That's a gig that I would turn down just flat out. Other types of outside the wheelhouse type gigs that I might be offered would be live sound. That's not exactly a yes or no black and white type of situation. My son's band director, one of my, my youngest son's band director, who I think is the greatest band director in the United States, he's asked me to do some gigs and I've done them because not only do I want to help him, He's a great guy, great band director, and I want to help the band program out. But, you know, it's a comfortable gig. It's something that I have control over many of the factors, you know. So I've done some live sound gigs for jazz camps, and those have worked out great. Most recently, I got hired for something I've occasionally get hired for, uh, consulting. But I got hired by uh, a group of people that I don't normally get asked to do anything for, and that's a country club. Yeah, I'm not exactly a country club type person, although I know people that go to this country club and that I consider, you know, friends or acquaintances. So I was a little more open to the idea. I was like, okay, sure, country club. I think I can handle this. What do they want? And they basically just said, hey, we're doing an event. Our facilities guy is going to run sound, but we want you to come down and check out the, the, the rig and make sure it's working as it should be and just kind of, you know, help him a little bit to figure out if everything is set up correctly. So, you know, I looked at that and I was like, okay, 
that's not outside of my wheelhouse from a technical standpoint. It's a little outside of my wheelhouse from a just a, a day-to-day personal standpoint. You know, I have nothing against these people, but, you know, it's just not my bag. So I, di- I did the gig, and, uh, you know, I billed well for it. I did not uh, skimp on billing, that's for sure. Made sure that they had what they needed. Now, at one point, they asked me, you really know what you're doing here, so what do you think about just coming and doing the gig? And I just said, I think I'm I think I'm okay. I'm going to get you guys up and running and make sure that you have what you need to be successful for this gig, and let's just leave it at that. And that was, to me, that was the right move because that was pushing my comfort zones a little bit. So uh, an, another thing that might be outside of my comfort zone, unless, unless it's a smaller gig where there's, you know, a little bit of flexibility and maybe the budget's a little lower is doing sound for on a, on a film set. I have no experience doing that. Now, if a friend called me and said, Hey man, I know you got a shotgun mic and some wireless, you know, labs. Could you bring down that and like a sound devices recorder and come do your thing? That's something I would do, you know, as a favor for a friend, but in, in a full on professional environment where I don't know anybody, that's something I would never do. So you just have to judge for yourselves how far outside of your comfort zone do you want to go? How far outside of your wheelhouse do you want to go? And even if it is in your wheelhouse, is the content something you're familiar with and good at doing? These are all the different factors. Obviously, the money is going to be a factor for, for all of us. We're all going to weigh that. We're, you know, Whether it's in our wheelhouse or not, we're going to say, do I want to do this gig? How much is, does it pay? Oh, it pays peanuts, uh, but I really dig the people. I'm going to do it anyway versus, oh, this gig pays a ton of money, but I don't know what I'm doing, and this is way outside of my comfort zone. No, I'm not going to do it. There's no black and white answer because the money or what it is you're doing could be out of whack or it could be right in line with what you do. You have to make that decision, but I just wanted to throw out a couple scenarios to think about so that you can you know, mentally prepare ahead of time when this comes your way. So for my pros out there, I know that you all know what to do, but for the amateurs or the up and comers out there, this is something to be thinking about. Be prepared, know where you stand, always be polite about it. You know, you don't have to be a dick. Some of you may may hear me say, oh, a country club. Oh, I would tell those people, you know, blah, blah, blah. First off, you have to get off the high horse and, and stop thinking that somebody who's not like you financially or you know socially you got to stop thinking that you're better than them or that they're they're somehow you know not good people you know just be polite be cool because you know they may come around with a gig that is in your wheelhouse that pays really well at some point in the future and you may be up for it and at that point the conversation will go a little easier than if you're super aggressive and you know not cool and not professional Always be professional, always be cool with people, no matter what their background. Those are a couple thoughts that you you might want to consider. But that's it. Consider when to say no, when to say yes. And whatever you do, don't be afraid to say no. I know you may think, well, it's a gig, but if you're not comfortable doing it, don't go do it. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that 
Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Todd Hutchison here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm very humbled to be here. Oh, well, I'm, I'm really happy that you can make time for me and appreciate that. For the listener, Todd and Jason Phelps from WCA number 355 are studio partners at Acadia in Portland, Maine. I felt it was really the thing to do to have them on back to back so you could kind of get the full picture from not only Jason's perspective, but Todd's perspective. So jumping right into talking about Acadia and the history there, prior to Jason showing up, what is the history of Acadia for you? So the studio was founded by a husband and wife team who were good friends of mine. He was actually one of the first people that I met when I moved to Portland from college and he started it with his wife in 1999. And so we had rented out the space literally right next door to the studio with a band that I was in that toured quite a lot in the early 2000s. And that was sort of our home base. A couple guys in the band lived there when we weren't on the road and we rehearsed there. And so 
I ended up sort of freelancing here in 2004 because I was trying to make records next door and it was competing with their clients working over on the other side. And I said, this is ridiculous. I should just try to join forces. Started freelancing out of here in 2004 and pretty much at that point was mostly a part-time gig for me up until really probably about 2009, 2010, maybe a little earlier, maybe like 2008, because they quickly saw that I was a much more proficient at this job than they were. And their sort of interests were changing as well, too. They sort of were heading more towards the video world. And they saw that transition quickly and saw that I could kind of fill that spot. And we worked out a business deal and it took about three years of working with his clients to basically make them my own in 2011 when the transfer of ownership changed to me. Was there a, a disparity in the, the clientele and the type of music that they were working with versus what you were accustomed to working with? Or were you trying to be kind of a everybody's engineer? I would say that I probably had worked alongside a lot of the people that they had coming in as well through friends. I mean, it's like Jason said in the last podcast, it's a pretty small knit tight community here Mm. in Portland. So everyone knows everyone to an extent, but I wasn't trying to steal business from them and vice versa. Mm. It just was more of a matter of convenience more than anything else to, to be able to bring them next door and not have to compete with the other noise coming through the walls at that time. Got it. Got it. Did they just kind of eventually, the the couple, did they exit out of the studio? Yeah, yeah. We took a three-year window to where I worked alongside them with their clients to make sure that their clients felt comfortable with working with me Mm. going forward. And then as soon as it was all said and done at that three-year period, they were like, okay, see you later, you know, (laughs) and wrote my last check and haven't really looked back since, you know? Wow. And of course, I should mention that the year that I bought this studio in 2011 was the first year that my daughter was born. So not the greatest time to uh, buy and start a business. What year was that? 2011. Okay, okay. So we're we're not entirely past the financial crisis that kind of started to happen in 2007, 2008, but just kind of at the tail end. Yep. Okay. Scary time for you. Yeah, but, you know, I bought the studio and was like, this is great. I'll be able to record my band for free. This will be great, you know? And now it's like the last thing I ever want to do is work on my day off tracking my own band. I know. (laughs) It's funny how it works out that way. Yep. Well, I know you don't own the building. You rent the building from a very friendly landlord. Yes, that is correct. So when you're buying the business... In this particular case, since you're not buying the building, were you buying any equipment with that? Yeah, it was all equipment. It was all the build out. It was the name. I could have changed the name of the studio, but at that point, I think it had had enough of a name recognition in the area and in the Northeast that I thought it was still a valuable name. It took me a couple of years to sort of mend bridges, if you will. Hmm. I feel like their communication skills you know, communication is a huge part of this business. I mean, I think it's probably about 90% of this business is sociology and communication. Wasn't their strong point 
And I think they burned a lot of bridges and it took a little while to rebuild, to basically be like, hey, you should come record at Acadia. And it's not the same studio as what you think it was before, you Mm. know? So it took a little while to unburn those bridges a little bit and to rebuild some trust. Yeah. So there's pros and cons to keeping the name. The pro is, is, you know, you have that continuity and people go, oh, okay, it's still there. It's still what it was. And that's also the con, because if they had a negative experience with that previous owner, previous management, then that becomes a stigma that you carry. That's correct. Yeah. I still wanted to honor their vision because they're very dear friends of mine. I still wanted to honor their vision of what they started. And mm. I think I think that they're proud of what they started and what they accomplished. So I felt it sort of dutiful to try to keep that going for them. So in the beginning, it was just you. It was rough. You know, <laughs> 2011, first child. My wife decided that she was going to start her own business that year. New kid. I'm working 80 hours a week for weeks upon weeks. And it was rough. It was funny because Jason was just talking yesterday that he had gone back through the our Gmail calendar that we share to 2009. And he was like, holy smokes, man, you were working a ton. And all of those sessions are still there on our Google calendar. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. When you say 80-hour weeks, are you just talking about pure business coming from within Portland there? Yeah, pretty much. At that point, I had still, I had had some clients in Vermont and in New Hampshire as well, too. So I went to school out in Vermont. So I still had a lot of those contacts that I still kept in contact with that would come over to record. And I was hungry. I was hungry and the rates were really modest. And I knew I had to put my head down. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a huge part of why I think we're as successful as we are today because we have that sort of mentality where blinders go on head goes down work yeah were you charging by the day or by the hour then at that point it was sort of a mix and match it depended on what was going on i still to this day still do the same thing it depends on what the need is you know and we're we're lucky enough to be able to have the flexibility here that some days we're pulling triple sessions a day Today, we've got a triple session going on. Damn. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's kooky. It's kooky. Some days I wake up and I pinch myself and I go, how am I doing this? What's that clientele made up of? Like those 80-hour weeks then and what are the, and, and now, like what's the composition of the clientele? I mean, all kinds of stuff. We do everything from Americana to bluegrass to metal to black metal. I'm recording sextets and quintets and non-tets. For jazz, straight ahead jazz stuff, podcasts and audiobook tapes, and it's all over the map. I do a lot of rockabilly stuff. I do a lot of ska. Jason just got done doing a bunch of Scottish fiddle records and a triple fiddle record. So I mean it's just it's kind of all over the map. Hmm. And I I really dig that as a person because I listen to a ton of different styles of music. And I think that if I tried to pigeonhole myself into one genre, I think I'd go cuckoo. Do you think that that diversity of of clientele is the key to your success? I do. I really do. Uh I personally try to strive to do the best that I possibly can within the genre that I'm working in. Yeah. You know, history for me is a big deal 
especially the history of like recorded music. It's something that I'm super passionate about and like even stylistically. So when I'm doing straight ahead jazz sessions, I'm very much like a Rudy Van Gelder kind of guy where it's like everyone's in the room, no headphones. I'll put them out if y'all need them and try to create that controlled bleed, right? Where the room and the accumulation of the backsides of all those ribbon mics create that other thing that gives that music that vibe, you know, and try to be as traditional as I can within those styles of music, because that's, that's what I love. You know, I love all those early prestige records. Oh man, you and I are on the same page. I've got a bunch of vinyl over here that is filled with Rudy Van Gelder recordings. Uh, I just, I just love it to me. Like that is to use the analogy of like film, like all of those Technicolor MGM movies from that time period, it's like the quintessential highest form of art where it's lighting, it's dance, it's costumes, it's the technological advances of those cameras of that time. And it's just like, to me, like that's the crowning achievement of where audio is and was because, yeah, we, we've got it, we can make it cleaner, we've got better mic pre's, we've got this, we've got that, but like, do those capture that? That thing? I don't know. I'm not really sure. But to me, like, I have a very soft spot for that kind of engineering. And I try to instill that in as much as I can. You know, it's interesting, too. I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole here. I swear there's a point to this. So you're talking about Rudy Van Gelder. And if I'm correct, he was in New Jersey, right? Yeah, that's Doing correct. That. Yeah. Okay. So Hackensack, I think. I, I kind of look at Don Z and Tara in Virginia with Inner Ear and the Discord Records label with totally you know, Fugazi and Rites of Spring and all that. I kind of look at Don as like the Rudy Van Gelder of that scene. And what to me those two scenes have in common, and this potentially is very similar to you and Jason with Acadia in Portland, Maine, is that we're talking about markets that aren't primary markets. We're talking about... Oh, no. They're yeah. not LAs. They're not Nashvilles or New Yorks. And there's a scene there going on. And to me, I see a lot of similarities from Rudy and, and Don and, and you guys in that. And there's something interesting about a small scene like that in a, in a non-traditional music city type city or town. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And what's also interesting to me, too, and hearing like how busy you are, I was sitting down and... I flipped on the TV last night and Sound City was playing on Axis Television, which is like kind of for the audience. You've never never seen that channel. It's like different music shows of various types. Sammy Hagar's got a show on there and they've got all kinds of stuff. I f think uh, Ahmet Zappa has a memorabilia show on there. So I was watching Sound City and what really caught my attention was that they got really busy for a long time and then... 80s hair metal time hit and they died almost completely until Nirvana came and recorded there. And that's why I ask you about your diversity of clientele, because it doesn't seem like you're going through any trends. You're just servicing the area, no matter what the music. Yeah, I'm like the anti-trend guy. I have absolutely zero interest in recording anything that makes trendy stuff. And I'm not really sure why. It might just be that I have a, a love of older stuff, I guess. 
I'm a product of the 90s. I really enjoy 90s music. I love the way that stuff sounds. I grew up listening to Paul Colderi and all those guys down in Boston. And that stuff got ingrained upon my head. I don't know. I'm not the first guy that wants to be like, you know, here's a modern metalcore record. I'm not that guy. Mm -hmm. But I also think in comparing to Sound City, just having watched that story again, they had invested at the time... I think their Neve cost them like in upwards of like $77,000 at the time when the owner bought a house for $38,000. So <laughs> yeah. your decision-making about your gear, first off, when you came to take over the studio, you, you were slowly paying into it to buy it. And it doesn't seem, based on my conversations with Jason, you guys go nuts on gear. You don't like go into great debt on gear. Is that accurate? No, we have... Other than that EIDL loan, we owe nothing. Mm. And I mean, I think we probably could turn around and pay that loan off today or tomorrow if we wanted to. But we're pretty meticulous about, we only buy what we feel like we need, but we're never, I mean, we're always lusting after stuff, you know? Like, I would love a new console, but it is what it is. And these are all just tools. And whether I get a new, brand new Milwaukee screwdriver versus an old Makita screwdriver, I don't care. Mm. If if I turn it on and it extracts a screw and puts a screw into wood, I'm good. <laughs> That's a great... I've never used the tool analogy. I love that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can spend hundreds upon hundreds of dollars for screwdrivers, but I'm pretty low-key, you know? Yeah. People ask me, oh, what's your favorite amp? And I tell them, oh, yeah, it's the one that turns on and works. Yeah, yeah. Well, that obsessiveness over particular types of gear, I understand. But at the same time, if you have a functioning studio, you just want shit to work. Totally. And it's already hard enough, to be honest with you, to keep this stuff. I do all the service on this stuff. Mm. And I have a lot of old things. And it's like working on old cars. It's like a labor of love. And oh, gosh, the Whirly's being weird. Oh, the Rhodes is being weird. And you just have to do it. And there's only so many hours in the day. Case in point, so we just bought a completely refurbed Studer A80 from Real to Real Tech Services up in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Really nice guy, Kurt Palm. We bought it, got it crated. It's been here. I finally got it put together. It's been here for like three months, and I finally had an afternoon to put it together and wire it up in the studio. So it's, it's there. It's hooked up. I haven't had an hour to sit down to align the machine yet. So it's just like, even when we get new toys, it's like, all right, well, I'll get to that in a couple months, you know? Well, I want to bring something up that I want to dissect a bit with you. So Jason had told me that you guys were starting to burst at the seams and you were starting to think about looking at other buildings. Yeah, totally. And I wonder, does it cross your mind that if you were to move and rent would you find the same friendliness in a new landlord that you have in the current landlord? So here's where we're at. If we're going to move, we're going to buy. Okay. Jason and I have had one conversation about this. And we basically said, we're moving and we're going to buy and we're going to move and build once. And then I'm done. Once I move, once we build once, I'm there until I can sell the business or I have a vision as to what I would like to do. And I think at that point, once we cap it, that's it. Because I think 
for me, every year when we sit down and do taxes, to see the many zeros in front of that decimal point every year that we give to somebody else drives me kooky. Drives me a little crazy because that's a lot of money. And I think in order to do this and have any longevity, it needs to be done that way. That sounds like one thing on a list of many things that over the years, I'm sure that when you started, things were one way. And over the years, you get smarter and smarter and smarter about how to run a studio. What's the best way? What are some of the things that you've learned along this path in running this studio in things that you could offer as advice to other people who are considering building a studio and doing what you've done? I think you need to know your market and to know your clientele and to know what your needs are. I think for a lot of people that I deal with, you don't need a big room. I think if you're a producer or a mixer coming up and you can create a space in your house that you trust, that you know, and you can rent out a space to do drums in for a couple of days, then your overhead and your budget are gonna be a lot lower for what you need and you can spend the better money on a good pair of speakers and a really good chair and really good converters and things that really matter, you know? So when you take that work that you do at other places home with you, when you want, let's say, that big drum room sound or whatever, what's the cost of that going to be as comparison to building resilient channels and three layers of drywall, 5 eighths drywall with Gorilla Glue and, and the physical space and the power and the blah, 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 and the et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it just adds up. So I think knowing what your be-all, end-all, what you want to do is, is really important. Like, I can't say to somebody coming to me, like, the most lucrative and best idea in the world is to make a studio, especially like our size or like a really big commercial studio. That's a labor of love, man. That's, there's, you got to be a little crazy, I think, to a certain degree to, to, <laughs> want, to, to want to do that. Yeah. I know uh, I am to a certain degree. And sometimes I wonder, oh, man, what did I just get myself into? But again, it's a labor of love. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Some people are really excellent cooks or great chefs. And some of them make the mistake of getting in the business of running a restaurant. And I think it's the same for audio professionals. I think that some of us whose lives center around studios, we may be good engineers, even if we're just mediocre engineers, and we have a good business Sometimes getting involved in a studio is not always the best decision. I'm not saying it's the wrong decision, but the way you're phrasing it now, especially now in this time period, it actually reflects what I've got. I came from bigger studios and ran those into the ground almost to a point where now I have a small room and I do exactly what you say. I'm going out to other rooms to get the basics done and bring it back home and wrap it up. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, I think that's spurred out of the fact of technology changing and the home recording invasion. And I think that the dust has settled from that. And people are seeing the aftermath of like, okay, I can do this all by myself, but am I getting a good product out of it? Right. People are able to go to bigger places to do those drum things or to use a specific piece of gear or just something that's sort of unobtainium to a person that's doing it in their house or in their home. Mm-hmm. But I think people are seeing the need for facilities that are still viable commercial working studios that have a crazy outlandish dollar amount that goes with renting that space for the day. Absolutely. And it's, and I bet you'd agree with me that it takes a slightly different mindset of an audio professional to run a studio Because you can't just be an engineer. You truly have to flex and grow to run the books, to maintain the gear, to hire people, to make sure those clients get what they need and all the follow-up and the intricacies that come with that. It's very complex. And the fact that you have stayed as busy as you have and really kept the ship going right along, that's a testament to your skill sets and your ability to multitask. Yeah. I, and work ethic as well, too. I mean, I come from a family that serious work ethic. So, and I think some of it is stupidity as well, too. You know, it's just kind of like, like I said, <laughs> blinders on, head down, wake up, look at my calendar. Yep. Got to do this. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a good audio soldier. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Audio triage is our specialty. Yes. Yeah. I'm a, a field medic. Do you guys get into podcasts at all? Do people come record podcasts there? Yeah. I mean, that's how we met Tanner. Oh. Tanner Campbell, your your former guest. Yeah. Yeah. He got in touch with us and when he was doing his Mythos podcast and ended up working with Jason. And I ended up talking to him and meeting him. And it was a weekly, super early in the morning. I'd show up. We'd sit around, have a cup of coffee. He'd go in and do his podcast. And that was before he had started doing the Portland Pod thing. So between that and and Alice Anderson, who's our studio manager, and really the one person, that's all she does when she's out front is edit our stuff and work on podcasts and work on audiobooks. 
I mean, that's where her passion is. She's got a healthy portfolio of, of folks that she works with. Yeah. She's a crucial part of the business from based oh on God. what Jason told me. Most important person. Most yeah. important part of the whole cog. Which brings up the point that when you're doing something like this, having different people with different talents and strengths, really the teamwork that goes into running a studio is so crucial. Yeah, exactly. My point of failure was, is that I was the only one doing it because I just, I had a hard time delegating then. I feel your pain, you know, I, having been that person for X amount of years, it was just as soon as I found somebody that I trusted, I was like, hell yeah, please help me. Yeah. You know, I started to go a little kooky, a little mad, a little kooky, you know, so it was nice to step back and be able to trust people. So I know you have one kid because you mentioned that. You have two now, right? Two, yeah. Okay. So how have you made that work with the family over the years? <laughs> well, so my wife, she's got sort of like a little empire of her own business-wise. And she's she's so much more successful than I. I'll leave it at that. And so, I mean, her business really comes first. And I'm lucky enough to be able to make my own schedule. So if she's like, I got to go for a week, I just clear my schedule, make it work. And there are times that my kids are like, dad, are you going to be home tonight? And I'm like, no, I got to work. So, I mean, it, it hurts, but we, we make it work. And I make sure that I spend as much quality time with them as I possibly can. Family is a very big deal for us, but my wife is in a creative business and we just make it work. Yeah. I assume based on your my conversations with Jason about the the finances and the transparency that you have a a well balanced financial approach to not only the business but your own life because it sounds like you and your wife have a good thing going with what she's doing and what you're doing. Do you all have just like an overarching financial philosophy that you use to address your businesses? I guess my overarching philosophy when it comes to this business is like, I trust Jason 125%. I'm not a big fan of money. I think it's one of the many roots of evil in life, but it's a necessary evil. I certainly talk money with clients, but in terms of collection, we just do it via online invoicing. And I literally pretend like we never have money. And that keeps me from wanting to buy things. I don't even know our password for our online banking. <laughs> I, I, I literally pretend that we don't have money all the time because it's the easiest way and just be like, okay, well, I don't know how much money we have. We can't afford this. And if there's a piece of gear that I'm like, hey, can we afford this? Jason's like, hell yeah, we can. And I'm like, okay, cool. Can we buy it? And he's like, yeah, all right. Okay. And if I just pretend that way, I never have to worry about it. I like that. And I think, I think the reason why I'm like that now is because I stressed every freaking night when I ran this place by myself about money. How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to do this? Like, I got to the point where I just, I didn't want that to rule my life anymore. Hmm. And so now it's just like, forget about it. And surrounding yourself with people you trust regarding yeah. that money, that's great because you couple that with your view that we don't have enough money, we need to work with what we have. <laughs> yeah. That leads to buying a building. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think you're right. I've never really thought of it that way, but. That frugalness will, I think, allow you all to make that transition should you decide to do so. Oh, I think, I think it's a long time coming for us. When did you first get involved professionally in recording? 
I guess maybe 2004. I think I think once I started to really come over here and start doing freelance stuff, was like, okay, this is for real. I mean, before that, I've got this mobile rig unit and going to people's practice spaces or going to people's houses and tracking and doing this and doing that. And some of this stuff got released and some of it was pre-pro for other records that they ended up going to other places. But once I had a place where I could feel comfortable about being like, yeah, I'm going to charge you some, some dollars here and having a facility to be like, well, this isn't my place and this is how much this costs. And I think that's when I was, I started to get a lot more serious with it. And what led up to the interest in recording? So I had always been fascinated with anything audio oriented in terms of sounds or all kinds of stuff, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about in a little while with my history. But I was always that guy. I just listened to a podcast that you were talking with, and I apologize that I don't remember who it was, but where there's always that one person in the band that knows how to set up the PA or knows how to do this or knows how to do that, that's technically savvy and is interested in that kind of stuff. And I was that person. So as you just mentioned, your early days, looking back now, can you see where the interest in recording in that technology occurred in your, as a kid or as a teen? Yeah, definitely. I think having had Tascam 4-Tracks kicking around and... TAC 3440s and reel-to-reel things and sound-on-sound and, I mean, the rest is history, really, you know? You start laying down a guitar part and you're like, oh, cool, like... And the amount of music that I was consuming at those early ages, it all just clicked. Mm. And when I ended up going to college, they had a studio in the back and it was a first-come, first-served basis and you wrote your name on the thing and... I literally would lock it out at 10 p.m. and come out of there at 8 o'clock in the morning to go to class <laughs> and just making mistakes. And it was a weird piecemeal studio, you know, 16-track, blackface ADATs, really, really rudimentary early sequencing software. They had a Tascam 8-track, half-inch machine there, variety of mics, and there was a three-level all-concrete staircase right there as well too so i would set drums up way down in the bottom and track drums getting your early zeppelin on totally you know i heard about that and tried it and was like wow this stairwell actually sounds like crap <laughs> and really learned how to make mistakes yeah i mean that was invaluable invaluable so where did you grow up because you didn't grow up in portland did you no i grew up about a little over an hour up in western maine just outside of bethel Ski country, big, big skier. And so it was a pretty sleepy town. I was consumed by music pretty early on. I took voice lessons at a very early age. My mom pushed me into voice lessons, played saxophone, sang. My mom used to make me go to church all the time. And I had a best friend that I grew up with as well, too. And so we would be singing hymns and every cycle around each verse, we'd change parts. So I got really good at singing all the, you know, all the SATB parts of every hymn known to mankind. And then it got to the point where I was like, every measure, I would change lines and change parts. So really early ear training, serious wow. amounts of really early ear training. And then 
started playing in bands. You know, I played in concert band and marching band and did all the choir stuff and did, I was a musical theater guy. I was in the tech side and on stage as well too. And just like in all these magical groups and barbershop quartets. So I was immersed with this stuff. Now, I was going to say, it sounds like as a kid you were involved. I was involved because I didn't want to be at home. I had a great upbringing, but my my mom, she's much older. She's she's in her late 80s. Oh, mine as well. And I was the youngest of a bunch of kids, and my nearest sibling is 11 years older than I am. So I basically grew up as an only child to a certain degree. But there was a huge age difference between the two of us. Yeah. So I think I just was like, I don't want to go home. I'm going to involve myself in as much after-school extracurricular activities as, as humanly possible. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, because the other thing that you didn't have when you were growing up, neither one of us had, was the internet and totally. the amount of distractions that kids have these days. And you got two kids, I got two kids, and man, trying to get my kids, hey, why don't we, no, nah, I don't really want to do that, Dad. Yeah. Oh, I, feel, you I feel your pain. <laughs> You're killing me your here. Pain. Back to Acadia. Over this last couple of years of COVID and knowing what you had going before, did it slow down at all? It did. I think when everything locked down on March 13th or March 14th for us here in Maine, we took the rest of March off and pretty much most of April and just sort of like waited until science caught up and data caught up with what was going on before we started doing anything. Mm -hmm. I started mixing remotely at the end of April. And that was my first foray to come in. We were just keeping in contact with the three of us to make sure that none of us were going to be in the same space at the same time and just really played it safe. And so I mixed a bunch of records at that time period. And then in the thick of it, maybe middle to late May, I started doing onesies. People that I trusted, you know, that basically became part of my bubble. I had basically two clients, maybe three clients a week that they were super safe. This was the only spot that they came to outside of their houses. And we just made it work, masked, and just took a little blood oath to each other and just said, we got to make this happen and we've got to stay safe. And so I was able to sustain those three clients once a week and remote mix the entire time. And we would just space that out. So one person would come in, there'd be a day off where no one was in the live room tracking. We let everything sit that night. I would come back after mixing in the other room, clean everything. Next day, the new person would come in and it'd be a space after, you know, we were just kind of all flying by the seat of our pants, just trying to be as safe as we can for us and for the people that were coming in. Well, I, I can identify with the remote mixing aspect of that. I ended up really getting a dialed in setup with audio movers to broadcast the audio and Zoom to communicate and to show them the, the screen and ended up wrapping up a big band record in that way. And another client of mine who typically would come over and it would seem to take all day when he was here, like that time got condensed. It was just like, okay, see you at nine. Hey, we're done with the revisions at 1130 or, or whatever, 1030, an hour and a half later. 
and then you're done. And then you got the rest of the day. You don't have to like wait around while they gather their stuff and, yeah, <laughs> you know, just selfishly that aspect of it. I was like, oh, there's some silver linings to this whole thing. I'm loving this. Yeah, totally. But being able to have that instant feedback was probably a real good thing, having to work work that distance. Well, it's it's nice when you can get people in from different geographic locations. You know, the, the big band record I worked on, we had a guy in L.A., and then we had another guy who's across town from me. And the three of us would just power through that stuff. It's like a 20-piece big band and going through and like, oh, can you solo the, the sax? Okay, let me hear the saxes and the trombones. And it's just like, that was effective to be able to do that and do it on online and then when we're done, it's just like, okay, see you guys tomorrow. Bye. <laughs> yeah. I know it was rough for a lot of people, but that is an aspect for me that it worked out great. And I bet other people, including you and Jason, came up with ways, as you've described, to work around it and to work yeah. work through that that challenging time. Did that time period and those challenges, did they teach you guys anything new that you're like, oh, well... In normal times, you wouldn't have thought of these things, but did it kind of give you a different perspective on your business at all? I'm sure it did. I'm still trying to figure out the navigation of of this whole thing that we've been dealing with. So I don't know if I can answer that. Mm. I don't think I've ever really thought about that before. I mean, it just, for me, it allowed me to think, okay, all the systems I have in place to work, which were remote-based to begin with, are now paying off which were never put in place to factor in a pandemic. But now that I see it and I see it in action, I'm like, oh, okay. I kind of like this independent way of working and reaching out through the screen to get stuff done. Not like I don't enjoy being around people. I, I love it immensely. I miss the trade shows like you wouldn't believe. But I was at peace with the whole thing. I was like, okay, th if this is how it's going to work, as long as we can get the work done, that's yeah, exactly. What's, that's what's important to me. Yeah, and I, I know that having listened to a lot of episodes, a lot of people were in the same mindset that not much changed for them. You know, they still went to their space and mixed alone and sent out mixes and people were getting revisions back and forth. And we still did a fair amount of that and still do a fair amount of that. So not much has changed in that world for us. But I think we did a lot more unattended mix sessions, which... Sometimes I like to have people there to bounce ideas off, you know, so that was a little harder. I'm not a mind reader when it comes to mixing. So if somebody has a vision for a certain thing and I hear it one way, I do it my way and hope they dig it. And I like that instant feedback though, you know, so yeah. that, that took a little while to get used to, but not much other than that. I mean, we sort of had a lot of these things in place much like you did, you know, with our phone patch system or doing it via Zoom or doing it via Skype with producers calling in and talents in the booth kind of situations. We had all those sort of mediums at our disposal that we were using on a daily basis anyways. Yeah. So. Well, we're about out of time. Obviously, I'll include a link in the show notes once again to the studio as I did with Jason. So audience, you can check out Acadia Recording Company there and see what those guys are up to. Do you have a website that you maintain of your own? I personally don't. I need to. I think it's gotten to the point now where I think that I've always wanted to steer people towards the studio and less. I'm not a big ego guy, so. but I think, I think it's time to put my face out there. But I did create a LinkedIn account 
thanks to your, I listened uh. to one of your rants, <laughs> one of your rants. And I was like, oh man, all right, I got to do this. So I have a LinkedIn account. We have an Instagram account, Facebook page with, and the website as well too. So I feel like if people want to reach out to me, they can. Well, I'll include all that in the show notes. So if anybody wants to reach out to you, they can. Really appreciate you making time for me. I'm so glad I could get both of you on back to back. My pleasure. And uh, I'm really glad to hear that business is good for you guys, that there is an active scene of music happening in that part of the country. Yeah. And uh, you guys are, you seem to be uh, in a great spot. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's a lot of hard work, but. (laughs) Oh, I know. As you know, labor of love. So. Yeah. Well, excellent, Todd. Thank you so much. And you take care. My pleasure. You as well. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Todd Hutchison here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, remember, if you do like the show, head on over to Apple Music and leave a positive review. Maybe five stars, maybe a small novel you want to write of your love of the show. Either one will help, and uh, whichever you have time for would be appreciated. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, And Mr. Chuck Smith, of course, with that magical voice at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.